from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. So glad you're here. Joining us in a conversation in which we explore everything related to work and the rest of your life, from family to community, society, and your private self, that which makes you a distinct individual, your mind, your body, your spirit. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I'm the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and of our leadership program. And I now run a management consulting, coaching, and training company. It's called Total Leadership. And you can find out about our services that help people and organizations create greater harmony and improve performance in all parts of life at totalleadership.org. There's free book chapters, articles, videos, assessment tools, lots of stuff there. So visit. New episodes of our show premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM 132. And you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business as well as me at Stu Friedman. Well, the entire country is having a conversation about race and racial injustice now. And it is the first week of August 2020. In the business world, there are calls for greater diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives that have a real impact at all levels, and those calls are louder than ever, certainly in my lifetime. What's it going to take to make this different, to make real change happen? My guest has some powerful ideas on this topic. She is one of the principal investigators on a report from Wharton's People Analytics Group and the firm Diversity, Inc. that shows which practices seem to work best for companies. And she authored a piece recently, a number of pieces in the Harvard Business Review, one that we're going to focus on in particular, how to be a better ally to your black friends. I am delighted to welcome my friend and colleague, Stephanie Creary, who is Assistant Professor of Management at the Wharton School, to the program. Stephanie, welcome to Work and Life. I'm so excited to be here, Stu. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. Stephanie uh, has been developing and teaching a course called Leading Diversity in Organizations to Wharton and Penn students since 2017. Her research centers on identifying and understanding the work that individuals and particularly executives do and can do to manage identity in asymmetric relationships. That's where power differentials between people in the relationship are high, and how their efforts shape self-views, how people see themselves, the quality of those relationships, and the performance of work. She's especially interested in examining these dynamics in relationships between managers and subordinates, minority and majority group members, and workers and their employing institution. Her, her uh, research examines diversity and people analytics and the effectiveness of diversity and inclusion practices. She's a founding faculty member of the Wharton Ideas Lab. That's Identity, Diversity, Engagement, Affect, and Social Relationships. We're going to get into that, what, what you're excited about in terms of what's, what's next on that front. Uh, she's an affiliated faculty member of Wharton Pen, uh, People Analytics, a senior fellow in the Leonard Davis Institute, um, and an affiliated faculty member at the Penn Center for Africana Studies. She heads the Leading at Diversity Speaker Series as part of her course at Wharton. Well, Stephanie, you've probably been really busy these days, I'm guessing. Absolutely. I, I got tired just listening to you read all of that. So, I know. yes. I should, well, I just wanted to know, I wanted our listeners to know all the things that you're doing here at Penn uh, to help bring us forward in understanding uh, what what is happening and what can and should happen in the arena of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, so, you know, this isn't new, uh, this issue, and you have devoted your career to this to this subject, but it's it's getting attention now that it just never has had during the course of my professional career following the murder of George Floyd 
captured on tape for all to see and the, the subsequent protests in the streets everywhere around the globe, not only uh, against police brutality, but also the systemic racism from which it emanates. In looking at work organizations, you've developed some really helpful frameworks, and we're going to talk about those so listeners can understand them and, and use them. But before we go into that, first, let me ask, how'd you get into this? What inspired you to move in this direction with your life and work? Well, I have to tell you, um, so I, I certainly have been at this particular topic, looking at a diversity, equity, inclusion for 14 years in a formal professional capacity. So, so I agree with you that there is something vastly different about this time. Um, however, prior to entering into this work formally, I worked in healthcare. Um, and it really was my experiences working in healthcare as somebody who provided care to others and certainly within a system that um, had some challenges around understanding how do you value work how do we think about workers and not just patients? Um, that actually led me to go to business school because that's what one, one does when they're trying to figure out what, what to do in life. So yes. what, what did you do in healthcare? What was your role there? I was a speech pathologist. I worked with people with stroke and brain injuries, um, the adults, and then I also worked with kids with neurological disabilities as well. So I'm a specialist in all things brain and cognition. Um, and, and so that was what I, my first two degrees were in, was in that healthcare profession. And it was through my experiences as a working professional that I began to understand uh, not only the experiences, the healthcare disparities is how we talk about that and race showing up there, but also as, as a black woman professional, who was always one of the only um, in, in my profession. And so trying to navigate an organizational system was, was also what, what, I, what I became sensitive to. What was that like for you? Yeah, it was certainly very difficult. I would say um, most in the hospitals where I worked, most of the people who were black were uh, worked in um, environmental services or in custodian, you know, as a custodian, or mm. they were lower level chief nursing assistants. So whenever I came in the room, I would often be confused for someone else. So it was really, had to work really hard to gain legitimacy for so actually what I was doing. Yes. Your status was automatically assumed to be lower than what it actually was, given the status hierarchies of the role that you were in. Is that right? Absolutely. So now you can see why I care so much about power and status and relationships, because it was something that was really salient to me. Yeah. Well, so how did that propel you to pursue a business degree? Well, I think for me is I became a, uh, interested in understanding what was happening in the context around me in the organization um, that might be contributing to this. And, and certainly as a healthcare provider at the time, they, they, we just knew about patients and the body. I didn't know anything about organizational behavior. And as I started talking to different people who I'd met, friends, they started telling me about this thing called organizational behavior. And I knew one could think about that in a business school. That was literally all I knew was that people in, in business schools, some people in organizations in business schools care about the organizational, the work environment. So that uh -huh. would be how I ended up in business school. Well, that's more than I knew when I went to get a PhD <laughs> in organizational psychology from the University of Michigan in 1980. But yeah. that's another story, although I do <laughs> mention that because I want at some point in this hour to talk about Erica James, our new dean, yes, who, yes. who is also a graduate of that program from which I got a PhD. Hers was considerably after mine uh, and, and the challenges that she faces in her role and, and uh, what, what it means for us as a school uh, to have her in the lead, a black woman, uh, mm -hmm. as our dean. But getting back to your inspiration, so you you wanted to learn more about organizational life because you were you were confused. Do I have it right? You didn't say that word, mystified. I don't know what. How would yeah, you? Yeah, I was. I was curious. Like? I was curious about ah. processing experiences of work, right? Because that was something that in healthcare, we didn't talk a lot about. So if you went to your boss, one went to your boss or the HR department and said, I'm having this challenge in the workplace. Um, and it was something about interpersonal dynamics or something with the patients. What you, what I quickly got was something that said, you know what, we're here for the patients. Let's prioritize the patients. Let's center the patients, not our own personal experiences. Wow. Um, but when so I talked like to my- That's like shut up and dribble. 
Absolutely. So when I think about my friends who had corporate jobs, because I had friends who worked in corporate jobs, they uh -huh. seem to have many more outlets for talking about their professional experiences. Hmm. So I wanted to have a, a place to begin to process that. I didn't know what I was going to do after I left my MBA program, but hmm. I knew that an MBA program, there was some sense of concern around the larger work, work, workplace context. Where was this? That, what, what city? You don't have to name the organization, yeah. although I am curious. Yeah, so this is Boston, and what you're going to love about this is um, it was at the Simmons School of Management, and the person who turned me on to this, Professor Stacey Blakebeard, is oh. a graduate from your same program. Yeah, sure. She's the one who introduced me to Laura Morgan Roberts, my longtime friend and collaborator, who you know as well, also a graduate of that program, mm -hmm. who introduced me to Mike Pratt, who was my dissertation chair, also a graduate of the program. So mm -hmm. Boston had a number of people, and oh, still yeah. does, who have been part of the same, um, you know, who, who have gone through the same um, experience that you have in your PhD program. And so when I got to my, my MBA program, Stacey Blake Beard taught my organizational behavior class. Mm -hmm. And so I learned, obviously, all the traditional things that we learn in OB, but so much of it was also about gender and race as well. So I entered into my MBA program talking about gender and race in the classroom setting. Wow. So that was a, a lucky confluence uh, that yes. you happened to be in, the, in, in her classroom. Laura Morgan Roberts, by the way, was just on the show yes. a couple of weeks ago. Uh -huh. um, and uh, that was a fabulous interview. Yes. Um, so you were in an MBA program and then how did that lead then to your becoming a PhD and a professor at Wharton? So right away, I guess I was just one of those students who asked a lot of questions. I already told you I came in curious, right? Yes. So, um, most <laughs> I most ended... <laughs> important quality for a researcher is curiosity. Absolutely. So apparently I was asking a ton of questions and I met separately with uh, Stacy, um, like I said, who was my professor in her office hours. And she asked me if I'd ever thought about a PhD, uh, which in hindsight, I'm like, that would be what I often say to students who ask me a ton of questions that I can't answer. And so um, I said, well, I'm not sure if I want to go back to school, but let's talk about it. So I started working with her in a research project and Laura Morgan Roberts was her good friend and Laura was in Boston at the time. And so they invited me onto a second project. So I started, gosh, one month into my MBA program, working with Stacey and Laura on research projects focused on diversity in workplace settings. All right. So, I mean, this is fascinating to me. I could ask a 20 more questions about your background and how <laughs> you got to this, uh, but I, I want to get into the substance of what it is that you've produced Absolutely. in your work uh, these last 15 years or so. But it's useful, I think, as context because, um, you know, what you're illustrating in your own story is the power of uh, you know mentors and mm -hmm. and sponsors in bringing young people along and opening up the gates uh, of of opportunity and and showing young people new directions and how essential that is for everyone absolutely to have access to people who older people who care and who are willing to invest in them so. Let's let's talk about um, what you have found. What what's what's the the most valuable thing you think you've done so far in terms of the the models that you've created and the frameworks for helping people and organizations uh, advance the cause of uh, equality, or let's call it equity and racial justice in business in America. Well, you know, I'm, I'm especially partial to my uh, LEAP framework that was recently published in Harvard Business Review because, mm -hmm. one, it was my first stab at trying to take years of academic research and make it accessible to other people. I, I have to let you know that it, it was a classroom um, framework. So my students, as we were talking about, you know, complicated things such as meritocracy, privilege, and bias, and inequality, at the end of the class, they're like, Professor, can you please help us, you know, we feel really depressed now. So what is one thing that we can actually do Wait, to make the situation better? Were they depressed? Oh, they're de after you pointed out all the systems of oppression. All things that are problems. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, you got it. So I'm teaching so about we're that. we're screwed. Please yes. give, us, give us some light, a ray of hope. Come on now. Something give us like some that. light. So what I did was I tried to figure out, you know, what is it that I want? Because I think where they were coming from is they don't have the sense that I don't have the authority as a student to change the systems. That's sort of what the belief system is. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of my research, as you've described, is interpersonal. So there are things that one can do interpersonally that 
I think are tried and true, regardless of whether you're an individual contributor, as I tend to phrase it, or an executive. Mm -hmm. It's when the executives do it that it can bring about much more uh, systemic change. And so the LEAP framework is designed to look at this um, idea of improving the quality of relationships at different levels. It's levels agnostic. Independent of whether you're an executive, a middle manager, or just at the front lines, uh, let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. So glad you're listening. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and my guest today is Wharton Professor Stephanie Creary, and we're talking about her research on diversity, equity, and inclusion in organizations. So... The LEAP framework, what is it? So the LEAP framework was originally designed to um, give people an understanding of how they can change the way that they engage with one another in relationships where there's something that makes them different from the other person. So whether it's a manager and a subordinate or you're black, I'm black and you're white or male and female, but there's something that feels hard about forming a a mutually beneficial relationship with this other person. It feels like there's something getting in the way. So the LEAP framework was is designed to help make that process make more sense and make it easier with the idea that the end goal is to develop a relationship, or at least in this part, a momentary interaction where you feel like each person is helping the other person. So there is a mutuality mm-hmm. um, that is really important. Um, I think to the the conception of the leap framework, but also to what makes for a good leap, if you will. Well, especially because uh, you know, in an age of a polarized uh, you know society, and where it's so easy to be taking sides in an antagonistic way, uh, anything that advances the idea of mutuality of you know, and common ground being you know plod together mm-hmm. uh, is, is, is a really important thing. So can you briefly yeah. sort of take listeners yeah. through uh, what the LEAP framework advises and how it uh, basically is a, as a guide for action? Yeah. So what I'll do is I'll give you the narrow version, which is one published in Harvard Business Review, because it's about uh, how do you become a better ally to your Black colleagues? But there's a broader version of it, um, which talks about the way that you use this with other dimensions of difference, but just to make this specific. Um, so okay. L stands for listening and learning from your Black colleagues' experiences. So it's this idea that one of the things that people are saying is, is so I'd like to be helpful, but I don't know how to be helpful. And so I say, well, the first step is actually listening and learning from your Black colleagues' experiences. And so how does one do that? Well, it's kind of easy right now. All of these companies are creating uh, town halls and other structured fora in which to begin to understand how people are feeling about racial justice and equity. And most of the time, there are Black colleagues on that panel who are open to disclosing what their experiences are. Um, obviously, if we're talking outside of the current context with Black colleagues, this would be something you'd want to do anyway, even if it's a manager, right? Is, is how do you get to know what it is that the other person needs before you decide that you're going to provide them something? Because it's really focusing on and centering on the other's needs. Um, and then, yeah. That so curiosity, I think curiosity. that uh, is, is really so important to be expressing and to be persistent right absolutely in, in expressing interest in hearing the other's point of view because there's there's ways of asking questions that don't really uh suggest that you're interested in hearing the answer right absolutely so, so let's drill down a little further yeah. on how to listen like what have you discovered about the good and bad ways of of uh you know the helpful and not so helpful ways of actually listening yeah Somebody actually rephrased this to me yesterday as I want to be, I want to ask my black colleagues, but I don't want them to feel like they're on the spot. And I don't want to feel like I'm just interrogating them. And I was like, okay, that's really emotionally intelligent of you to understand that on the other end, it could, it could feel like an inquisition, right? So how do you exhibit curiosity in a way that doesn't feel invasive? And it's actually, um, you know, one of the things that I say in this framework is ask people about their work. Right. Um, that's actually the A of the ask. So I kind of have embedded curiosity in two places in this framework in the L, which is about listening and learning. That's like the easier way is, is, is allow yourself to almost be a fly on the wall without 
asking a ton of questions. And then by the time you get to the A, it's the ask people about the things that you're curious about, but please start with their work. Because when we think about, you know, my research and other research shows is when you interview or when you survey black employees, they say they're often asked about their personal lives or their appearance, uh, things that people feel that are very uh, visibly different from them. Um, but the, the things that they're most concerned about is sort of like my work and my capacity to be successful here. So, so I would say that that's usually a safer topic. So don't talk about somebody's hair or fingernails, but ask them about the research that they're working on. Right. Don't talk about their hair or fingernails unless they've invited that to conversation already, because that would be those num- the number one and number two questions that black women get asked a lot is about I, their hair and their fingernails. Yeah, I was I was trying to, in an implicit sort of way, illustrate that I was aware that that is. Yes, absolutely. Uh, how would I know that? That's an interesting yes. question, too. But we don't really need to get into how I learned those lessons, but I've learned them. Uh, yeah. So really listening uh, but you you mentioned, I think, what is such an important issue today, and that is there's, there's a lot of people who look like me who, you know, want to be a part of a fruitful conversation, but fear, you know, burdening uh, their, their white, their black friends and colleagues with like, oh, here's another person I have to explain shit to. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So how do you... Um, what, what advice do you have for allies in this approach that or, you know, prospective allies so that they don't um, have that sense of, you know, imposing. Yeah. So here's what I tell people um, about myself. And I say, you could reasonably expect that other people who are in the same position would, um, would uh, respond similarly. So there are a number of panels, talks, lots of different things that I get asked to do. If you can, can only imagine, I can, right? Imagine. You can only imagine how many things I get asked to do. And so I don't say yes to those unless I am willing to be people's person that they're going to ask questions to. So oftentimes after I appear on a panel or part of a conversation, somebody reaches out and says, I wanted to ask you a question um, that I don't feel comfortable asking my black colleagues at work, but you talked about this specifically. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you? And the answer usually is yes, is because I put myself out there as somebody. So the, the lesson is people, some people put themselves out there and show that they're open, that's yeah. who you want to go to with your curiosities first. And they will help you figure out how to go to those who are probably less willing. Because as you know, you do this work on, um, you know, work life and people who want to be segment and people who want to, you know, integrate. And some people just don't want to be known as for their racial identity in the workplace. Yeah, no, that's one of the things that Laura and I talked about was how, you know, in, in Zoom life, you know, exposing your personal life is actually a risk for black people who, for those black people who would prefer to cover, you know, Mm -hmm. their identity as revealed through the architecture of their living rooms or wherever. Right. uh, Because that's, that's a struggle to have to, you know, fit into the mainstream. Uh, Yeah. No, this is a question that's been on my mind for a long, long time. I can recall well, uh, going to see Do the Right Thing with David Thomas, who I know yeah. you know. David, David and I were, um, were both assistant professors here at Wharton 30 years ago, and uh, we were friends and we're still friends. I was at his uh-huh. inauguration uh-huh. As, as president of Morehouse College last year. Yeah. Uh, and that, that was a momentous event for, for me as, a, you know, it was an amazingly elevating experience for him and his whole family. But I went with him and Willetta, his wife, to see uh, that that breakout Spike Lee movie in nineteen eighty mm-hmm. whatever eight, and I, I I was my wife and I we were the only white people in the audience, right. and uh, you know that was just a part of uh, the conversation that uh, that that we've been having for you know these thirty plus years, um, and. You know, now he's president of Morehouse College, and I know that he's been influential in your development. So let's, before we go to the break, just say a little bit more about David, your experience working with him, and then then we're going to get to the EAP in LEAP. 
Yeah. So uh, David was my first professional research job after my MBA program. So I worked for him for four years, two years prior to my PhD and two years during. And so I tell people all the time when I think about diversity management and organizations and things such as mentoring or how black individuals navigate their careers, it's quintessential learnings from having him as a mentor all these years. And so it's been, he was a essentially gave me my start in a professional capacity. And I think the work that I do now trying to, I, the, the idea that it's both um, academically a contribution, but also practically a contribution is really quintessential Dave Thomas. Yes. That was when he was a professor at Harvard before becoming Dean at Georgetown and now president at Morehouse. Um, and, you know, I've interviewed him on this show and if you're interested folks, you can, you can find the podcast for those conversations um, at totalleadership.org. Stephanie, we're going to take a short break here. And when we come back, we're going to learn what the rest of LEAP involves and how anyone can use it to, to be a part of uh, creating fruitful dialogues towards more harmony and freedom uh, in this world when we come back in just a minute. So stay with us, folks. Uh, don't go away. I'm going to be continuing my conversation with Stephanie McCreary in just a minute. I am Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Hey, welcome back to Work and Life. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I'm really glad you're listening. My guest today is Wharton Professor Stephanie Creary, an identity and diversity scholar who teaches an elective course called Leading Diversity in Organizations to Penn and Morton students. She's one of the principal investigators in a report that highlights which diversity and inclusion practices seem to work for middle managers. And we're talking about her framework to help create mutually beneficial conversations about difference, particularly race. It's called LEAP. So the L, Stephanie is listen, seems like something easy to do. What makes it hard? What makes it hard is because people have to be prepared to hear things that they do not want to hear, right? And I think when it comes down to race, um, you know, so many people use the words, oftentimes I was taught to be colorblind, right? And so now we're magnifying race. And so for some people, they might have beliefs against actually talking about people's experiences of race or if the or I think for some people when you hear uh, somebody who is black or brown talk about their experiences of race um, there's I've heard the words a lot lately guilt and shame that's a new one for me is, is, is white people expressing experiences of feeling guilt and shame when they listen to black and brown people talk about their race mm. and so I think one has to be prepared to enter into this emotional cycle and this realization of like how is my experience different from those who are black and brown or how might I have not supported or have contributed to uh, some of the challenges that they're having. So the, so the guilt and shame that you've been hearing people, white people talk about when hearing the voices and the narratives of their friends and colleagues, that that's a, a surprise to you or is new for you? I think hearing white like people progress. admit it. I think hearing white people admit it. I've never heard. Uh, I get on. I've gotten on the calls lately with white male CEOs who say, "I'm 50 whatever or 60 whatever years old, and I don't feel like I've ever discriminated against anybody. I've, I certainly don't feel like I've ever been discriminated against, but I help, can't help but feel. And I'm giving you word for word what I'm being said because the narrative is the same. I can't help but feel a sense of guilt and shame." For about this issue, yeah. um, and so I've heard that at least four times since right. June. Well, that's that seems to me to be a mark of progress that you can hear that, uh, yeah. and uh, because it's being expressed, uh, it's part of you know the reckoning that I believe mm-hmm. is occurring in our society now. So, is does that how, how do you react emotionally to hearing you know people like me? you know, senior white guys uh, in executive roles telling you that they feel a sense of shame and guilt about the racial injustices that perhaps are only first occurring to them. Yeah. So I say to them, I think I always thank them. I said, thank you for telling me that that is what you are feeling because I wouldn't have known 
because people usually don't admit that. So it was really helpful for me just as a person getting on this call with you. And obviously as a black woman to hear somebody say that, but I think what we now need to do is we need to turn that guilt and shame into something that is, is, is productive because if we don't begin to channel that, it's going to turn into a reason to not act. So how do we take your emotions that you're feeling and, and, and root those into something that is actually going to be helpful. And that's, I usually tell them that that's my job is to help you get to that place. Yeah. And, and the feeling that you have when you hear people say that it's gratitude. That's what I heard you saying. Is- yeah, I feel gratitude. And I also feel, I mean, I actually do feel a little bit nervous about it because it's sort of, again, it's new for me yeah. hearing these things. I also feel, I mean, I, I think I feel definitely more connected to um, the, because obviously I feel especially vulnerable, right? And so I think right. that's what it is. I think it's the point that I always feel vulnerable because it's always my race and usually my gender right. that are that are being spotlighted as, as being, is, is having uh-huh. some challenges. And so because I already feel vulnerable and I've had to learn how to navigate not you know, expressing, knowing when to express and when not to, when the person on the other end, which is a white male who often do not make themselves vulnerable in the workplace around their emotions. And all the research says this, but all of our personal interaction tells us as well. That's what I see. And so I feel connected because you've now told me what you're experiencing, which is a a sense of vulnerability um, that I have to walk around with all the time. So I I guess I feel similarity now (laughs) because I'm like, yes, you kind of know what this is like now is to feel uncomfortable. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm interrogating on this question because I, of what you said earlier about the mutuality of discomfort Mm -hmm. and you know, the anxieties provoked by conversations that are, you know, implicitly conflictual and, and force us to look at aspects of ourselves that we might not otherwise want to reveal. And, you know, to the extent that you feel closer to, you know, that there's a greater sense of of mutual interest and, Mm -hmm. and a common purpose. And you're, you're reflecting back to those people like me, that their vulnerability about their uh, experience in talking about race is actually helpful to you mm-hmm. because you feel a greater sense of um, well, but as you just said, a similarity, and you know, it it really highlights that we're in this together piece yeah. of it, and 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 I think that's often missing in in mm-hmm. conversations like this. You know, what it's like for you to talk about it, and how my talking about it can be helpful. Uh, in, in ways that you just described. Tell us about the rest of the LEAP framework. Yeah, because uh, so, I could talk about listening for this entire hour, as you can tell, but <laughs> I, I know that listeners want to hear the rest of it. So what's the yeah. EAP stand for? Okay, so one quick thing before I go to the EAP is I just want to say where this becomes so important, um, this idea of, of vulnerability, yes. because that is part of the framework, right? Is it helps people to understand uh, a different model and the model of allyship, which doesn't work, but is often the one how people talk about it is is somebody who is in a powerful position coming in, supporting the person who's uh, in a junior position. And what that comes across like in race interactions, uh, a lot of times is like as a savior, right? Is somebody coming to save and it can be very paternalistic. Mm -hmm. And so by both exposing uh, their, what's what makes them feel vulnerable um, in this, interaction, it's saying that I'm not here to save you. I'm here to relate to you. And so then now we're on the same level Mm -hmm. and we're going to work through this together as opposed to me being the all powerful white male who never feels anything bad, which is obviously the stereotype, um, coming to rescue you as the black woman, right? We're trying to like not do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So E becomes engaging with black colleagues in racially diverse and more casual settings. And where this makes sense is, is you're meeting them on their turf. If you meet a, a black colleague in the black um, employee resource group. So we have these in organizations where black employees convene to talk about how to be successful in the organization, to socialize, to network. You as a white person going to one of these meetings, which are 99% of the times open to all employees, all meetings, you're coming to their community and you're learning about their experiences um, with a whole bunch of other people who have a shared experience rather than 
me as the only black woman in the white space continuing to try to explain my experience around a whole bunch of people who are looking at me like, really, that happened? Or that happens, right? So E is about meeting people where they are in that racially diverse space if you actually want to know more information. So can you give like another example beyond the, the resource group where one could you know, try to find access to a, a, a community space that, that is one where it's easier for yeah. people of color to be who they are and to reveal themselves without the kind of anxiety that's, that attends to their being in the minority or really the sole representative of you know, their, their particular group? Yeah, so my good my good friends, um, Tina Opie, who's a professor at Babson College, and Beth Livingston, who's a professor at, at University of Iowa, they have this really cool group now called Shared Sisterhood, and it is massive. They have a following. It's more than 3,000 people on um on Facebook and and you have to you can you can request to join but they make you do all this homework to show that you're serious about learning and and their principles are I think they call it dig and bridge and so they provide all of these ways in which you can ask these questions but it's facilitated by experts um, and so that's I, this some, certainly something that they were doing pre-pandemic but it's really taken off now because it's um, like I said, you do have to do the work, um, which means replying to questions and, and watching videos, but everybody who's part of the group is committing to learning um, from one another. So I, I like to uh, share what they're doing because I think it's innovative. I've Since I told them about this, somebody sent this to me online, there's apparently this... Um, this uh, group of women, um, I can't remember which uh, state it's in, but they did this pre-pandemic, a similar thing at a dinner party style. So they bring strangers together at one person's house for a dinner party to, to have these conversations. So I think they're popping up. Yeah. Um, and I think what's great about that is it's not, it doesn't have to be your work colleagues. It's yeah. other people outside. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's less risk in yep. those settings. Uh, and you can still learn a ton, right? Yes. All right. So listen, engage. Ask. So this is where you can start to ask more direct questions about people's um, experiences. But what I suggest is, is start with their work first, because so much of the pain that Black employees are experiencing in the workplace is the lack of work-related support, the lack of advice, the lack of sponsors, the lack of advocates, the lack of access to prime opportunities. And so you will learn a lot if you actually ask Black employees about their work and how is their work going. And um, so what are you enjoying mostly? Um, what are the things that, that you feel like are challenging for you that you might need some support on? Because I'd like to be of assistance to you if there's something that I can do. That's, but you have to have listened and learned, right? And you'd have to have learned to engage before I think asking feels um, genuine as opposed to a checking the box exercise. So the key in ask is really to focus your, your questions on you know, the substantive, the stuff that, uh, that your colleague is, is pursuing in their work as opposed to in their non-work lives. Is, is that, do I have it right? Yes. And I say I prioritize work. So I'm a, I was tell people, I said, for me, I don't really have a problem talking about my personal life at work, but I'm, what I'm acknowledging here is the gap. If we had to think about the, where the balance is off is black colleagues are often asked more about their personal lives than their work. So we're trying to right the ship right. here by asking more about the work, knowing that they're still being asked about their personal lives, you know, more so than anything. And it's really the gaps around feeling supported around work uh, and feeling like that is being addressed, um, which is, is really what needs more attention to. For sure. All right. Let me just uh, remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm speaking with Wharton Professor Stephanie Creary, my friend and colleague in the management department, about diversity and inclusion practices uh, and her model, LEAP, for all of us to use to create greater mutuality and change in how we relate and change our relationships and our organizations. So listen, engage, ask, and 
provide. This is where provide. you actually provide the opportunities, suggestions, encouragement, and general support that you just learned in A by asking that your Black colleagues are not getting. Um, and sometimes it's a question of, again, this is where I say is it doesn't matter if you're um, junior or senior. There's always something that you can do to be supportive. And that might just be you know what, saying um, when the, I talk about to my, my students, I say, you know, you witness in meetings, you've expressed to me, you've witnessed in meetings that the person who is um, black in this case or in the minority isn't given the same opportunities to contribute, right? You might be somebody knowing this because you learned this previously, you got permission first. You said, you know, Stephanie, do you, do you mind if the next time we have a meeting, I actually say, I would love to hear more from you so that I can, we can, we can get your eyes out there because now you have a friend who amplifies. Um, and then once you've gotten that agreement in the meeting, you can say, you know, um, I would love to hear, you know, I, I would love to hear what Stephanie has to say. I think she has some good ideas and I don't think we've heard them yet. Mm -hmm. And that's not about, that can change systems over time, but that sure. does change processes in, in the short term. And then certainly um, people who have lots of power and authority like yourself, who are all senior, you're learning uh, by uh, asking the questions. You have the capacity to, to reinvent how um, talent management systems are structured, like how people are recruited, how they're promoted. You can do the big stuff, but you got to learn it from the, the other parts of the L, the E, and the A first. You talked about the guilt and shame that the people who are becoming more aware than they had been about, you know, our history of, of racial injustice um, as as a kind of motivation, right, for for them to to try to change and, and to 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 rectify and, and repair. Uh, you know, and that is a long, hard process. What else have you found works uh, in terms of tapping into the motivation of allies or potential allies to, to go that extra effort, you know, to listen, to engage, to ask, to provide what, in other words, does um, what's in it for them? Yeah. So, you know, for some people, I mean, you have to understand is that experiences of guilt and shame are personal for, so for so, some people, the act of helping you know, uh, our, our colleague Adam Grant does work on pro-social behavior, and he usually says, you know, just pro, like doing something to support somebody else doesn't mean that it has to be entirely selfless. And so there's always some degree of self-enhancement, um, <laughs> to use a nice word, that can be achieved by helping someone else. But um, I think for some people who are less... Um, less attuned to the justice reasons for doing this type of work or equity uh -huh. that's less motivating. Obviously, we've struggled with having this business case for diversity. Um, what we try to talk about is, because I'm not one who takes a hard line on, we need to do it because it makes us money. That's, that's never made a lot of sense to me. Um, right. But I think certainly this idea that we're trying to have an organization where everybody can learn, grow, and thrive. Mm -hmm. And that's really something that people at the top do care about, right? Um, I, the more I've, I've found myself languaging it that way is you really do want that because you think that it's important for us to be able to function effectively. And the people um, in the middle who, who, who tend to be, you know, less powerful and, and more yeah. stuck by, you know, various kinds of pressures that they don't control. How do you appeal? What would you say? Yeah, it's about their team, right? Because what they have, what many people who actually, people who are people managers first. So let me talk about the people uh, in the middle who actually manage people. Yeah. They know that they're being me measured on their ability to get their team together mm -hmm. and functioning. Mm -hmm. uh, so it can't be about, you know, the whole organization, the big brand. It has to be about how is this going to help me in the day-to-day -day yep. problems or opportunities that we have as a team. So, so this is sort of why it's challenging, right? Is you got to boil the level, the you got to boil the conversation down to what they see in front of them as their immediate um, pains and opportunities. Yep. The hardest groupers are those who are in management who don't have um, people responsibilities, right? Because they're sort of don't have a ton of authority, but have a lot of work to do, but they don't have frontline employees coming and reminding them that this is their job. So, so that's where the work still is. And that's why you'd reference my research on uh, with Wharton People Analytics as we're trying to understand what works and what works specifically for people in the middle, hoping to be able to say more about that in the years to come. Yeah, that's an important 
large group. Uh, now, we have a, a new executive uh, in our organization. Yes. Uh, Erica James is uh, the new dean, just started last month. Um, what, what do you see as the opportunity for us as, as an organization, the, the Wharton School, with a black woman now in the chief executive role? So there's so many opportunities. I am so thrilled to have Erica here. I will tell you, I mean, it it is a small world. It's a small world, but in 2008, when I was David Thomas's RA at Harvard Business School, Erica James visited for a year. So I actually met her a long Uh time ago and I've known her for quite some time. So, you know, this is somebody who I truly believe is an absolutely outstanding leader, but also a scholar as well, and truly fundamentally believes and knows what to do when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So having someone in the leadership position who understands institution building and capacity building as a whole, but also fundamentally has deep subject matter expertise in this, not just academically, but also practically, I just feel like it's a huge win for all of us. And I'm so grateful that she chose to come work with us. You know, I was speaking earlier today to someone who we both work with on the staff, herself, a black woman who said to me, yeah, when they chose Erica, I cried because, yes. you know, there, there's somebody who looks like me. Yeah. And I, I just never thought that could ever happen. So there's a lot of hope. What does she have to do? Like, it, yeah. you're, my guess is that you're, you're probably advising her. I'm hoping that you are. You, you have a lot to, to share and to yeah. advise. What should she do? What would you do if you were in her role? Yeah. So um, what I have told her is, you know, we need to focus on our structures, right? And what I mean by that is, is making decisions around where will diversity sit? Are we going to have formal chief diversity officer titles? Are we going to have other diversity? Is there a center for diversity? Because what happens is, is we... People need to see visibly where the information, where the work is being held in order to know where to go. And so what happened is, is when I came to Wharton three years ago and started teaching this diversity class, I ended up becoming the center for a lot of people's ideas, but that's not the appropriate place, right? Um, And so, you know, having some centralized set of resources, plural, where people can, um, where the work can be done and people can, can actually get the support that they need, I think is really one of the first steps. Uh Yeah. So I'll look forward to that happening. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I'll I'll certainly support that. Um, So maybe that'll reduce the likelihood that you'll get student evaluation comments from your diversity class. Like the professor talks too much about race Absolutely. There are too many African-American guest speakers. Uh, you shared that with us, like that you actually got that in a class on diversity. Yeah. Can you explain what that means? Like why somebody would say that to you in a course evaluation form in a course about diversity? You'd be amazed at the, what the comments that I get in a course about diversity. I think certainly, so, so the other comment that's not in, in that the list that you just shared was students tell me that I'm the first black professor or teacher, right? If, especially if they're going back to yeah. elementary school that they've ever had and how they're happy about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they also sometimes tell me that they're the first woman professor that they've had in the MBA program so far. Wow. So I get all sorts of things about this. So it's very, so what that tells you is that my race and my gender are especially very salient to the students in my classroom. And obviously all the research would suggest that. Um, and so I think what happens is, is as I am there, um, anybody who looks like me, who is also um, speaking, um, their, their, their visibility becomes magnified. So it might feel like, oh, this is too much because yeah. before the, the opposite or the, the norm is too little, right? So all of a sudden it becomes, becomes one more, two more. It feels like too much, even though relatively it's not a lot. Hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. So what are you most excited about with the Ideas Lab? Um, I'm super excited about the opportunity to uh, work with both faculty and doctoral students on developing new ideas. Um, I think, you know, we're all so busy, but when we meet together, it's, you get to hear um, ideas from when, from the minute that they start to fully fleshed out things that get accepted. Um, It's just nice to have this incubator of people who are working together and working across. The other thing that I think that we're doing that I've I've really enjoyed is we, we have a website um, I think it's ideas.wharton.upenn.edu. 
and we've created resources. Uh, one of the first things that we did was when I got here was we created resources for diversity, equity, and inclusion. So this is now pre what I refer to as summer of 2020, because that to me is yeah. what it just feels like. Yes, it um, does. And so I think for us is, is we're actively trying to figure out how do we take all of our abstract academic knowledge and make it useful um, a useful resource for other people. So if you go onto the website, you will see uh, different profiles, featured research, and, and we've had a writer translate that so that it's accessible to the world and not just academics. We just have a minute left, Stephanie. Um, if, if your work is, is successful uh, five years from now, what is, what's different uh, about what we're doing here at Wharton and beyond? Yeah, I think uh, more people will be doing this work. Um, I think certainly people will always respect that I'm a subject matter expert, but more of the work will be done and they might just say, hey, do you think this is a good idea rather than tell me what it is that you that we need to do. Um, so I think that is more people really owning, taking on the work and running with it, um, I think is really important because that's what I do. You know, I actually just try. I experiment and see if it works. And if it doesn't work, I just don't have the same amount of fear as a lot of other people. So, so what will that mean in terms of the dynamics of race and work five years from now? 30 seconds. Yeah, people will talk about race without feeling the need to whisper the word race. They will talk about mm. black or describe me as black without whispering the word black or say, mm. I don't know which word you want me to call you. Mm. It just becomes something that's normalized. And we don't have to say, well, I was raised to be colorblind with our preface, to be our prefacing statement. So I just, mm. I really want it to just be a normal thing that we can talk about, just like we say the word gender, 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 gender. It's not an issue. Stephanie, thank you so much for taking time out of your, I'm sure, very busy schedule to, to join us on the show today. What's the best place for listeners to find out more about the research we've been talking about and more about your work? Yeah, so I have a website, stephaniecreary.com. There's certainly a, a section called Media, which will show a lot of things I've been saying in the public press uh, this summer, but also before that. And then I have a section that I just created on how-to resources. So it's how to do cool. a lot of different things. So you might want to look at there to see if whatever you're looking to understand, I might have already written something about it or, be quote, or have been quoted in something about it. So that's Stephanie Creary, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E-C-R-E-A-R-Y. Uh-huh, com. Cool. Stephanie, thanks so much. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Me too. And thank you for listening. Don't forget to tune in next week at 5 p.m. Eastern. And if you have a question about something you heard on the show, you can just email me. I'm Friedman at Wharton.upenn.edu. And our station is it's business radio at SiriusXM.com. I am at Stu Friedman on social. And you can follow us at SXM Business here for all of our shows. Edited versions of this show and all the other shows uh, prior to this from this year and the last couple of years are at TotalLeadership.org where you can find out all kinds of other stuff about the work that we do, helping people to create harmony and better performance in the different parts of life. Thanks, Patty Hall, our producer, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. And again, thank you for listening. I'm Stu Friedman. It's Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.